Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Now, the prank of the year. And savage it is, too. On closer inspection, a delight becomes a fright for the phone company. I'm really disappointed about the whole thing. Now look at this. Look carefully. T-E-L-E-C-O-M, telecom, and S-U-X, sex. Oh, yes. Ain't nothing to work out. Ain't nothing to know. Ain't no way you can grow unless you let go. Ain't nothing to work out. Kia ora. Welcome back to Prank of the Year. At this point, we're very close to the end of our formal investigation into the curious case of the telecom Christmas card. Luke and I have spent literally years looking into this, but even now we're finding new rocks to peer under. We do have a conclusion to our story, but we've got one more stop to make first. Today, we wanted to bring you something a little different, a deeper dive into some of the interesting subjects that came up during our research. The people you hear from today are experts in their field, And during the course of our corridor, we picked their brains about specific aspects relating to our investigation. These interviews might not help solve our mystery, but we wanted to use this episode to amble down some of the investigative side streets and share what we found with you all. Our final episode will land in your feed on Friday the 22nd of December, the 30th anniversary of the Holmes broadcast that started this whole journey. Until then, I hope you'll find these tangents as fascinating as we did. If you think about it, this entire project wouldn't exist if Telecom's marketing team hadn't made the decision to spread seasonal cheer to its customers with a Christmas card in 1993. You might remember from our second episode that Telecom's marketing went through a bit of an overhaul in the 90s. Remember Spot? So how would a Christmas card feed into their overall marketing strategy? No, I can't. I can't particularly remember this uh, incident at the time, to be honest. I certainly grew up with memories of, um, you know, discussions around telecom being a monopoly. And, you know, there was um, a lot of public sentiment against telecom at that time. But no, I don't remember this particular incident. But I did read the article that you sent me and uh, had a look into it. 
Um, but, you know, certainly during that time, um, you know, we're a much less internet-based society. So something like a Christmas card was something that everybody did uh, for each other. So it's an attempt to, I guess, show the customer that they're valued, um, that you're um, kind of engaged with their lives and that you're part of their life. Um, this is Dr. Phoebe Fletcher, a marketing lecturer at Massey University. While Phoebe wasn't involved in telecoms marketing per se, I reached out to her because I wanted to dig into what the concept of marketing actually is and why a company like Telecom might devote time and resource to it. So marketing is really closely aligned to the overall strategy of the company and that it's thinking about your broader objectives and how you create customer value. Um, so that is thinking about the perception of the product and the mind of the consumer and how you kind of uh, continue to generate customers. Because if you don't have customers, um, then you often don't have a business uh, because you're not generating revenue. Um, so it's really thinking about a whole pile of core levers like product price, place, promotion, people, processes, and physical evidence. And marketing actually covers a whole pile of areas that you wouldn't think it covers. <laughs> um, so, you know, when you talk about um, things like people, for example, um, you know, like the people in your organization, they're part of your branding process as well, because every interaction they have with the consumers gets uh, kind of perceived by consumers as being a part of that brand. Distributing those Christmas cards is high cost. Um, so, and, and it's high reputational damage as well, potentially, if something goes wrong. And that's why you usually have multiple eyes that pour over that. So it's really highly unusual that anything actually got through. <laughs> and it's hard to tell whether it was like a highly motivated individual um, or, you know, because it's got the logo there. I mean, maybe it's a form of sabotage advertising, um, which is, you know, where kind of a challenger brand will take on an established brand. I just think it's um, so unusual because there's usually so many levels of sign-off and when something goes wrong, it really usually is um, a result of people operating in a vacuum of marketing research. And um, I know myself from working in marketing that there's just such a plethora of ways that people think and relate to your brand. Um, and, you know, sometimes you're just not a not aware of um, how people are consuming things. So that's usually the way that mistakes happen. So, you know, if you think about, you know, Coke Zero, um, they rebranded as Coke No Sugar um, because in the UK they found out that like a quarter of consumers didn't know that Coke Zero meant zero sugar. Um, or you think about, you know, that massive Pepsi ad with Kendall Jenner on the Black Lives Matter um, where um, <laughs> it... it you know, the ad went through multiple layers of sign-off. It would have cost millions of dollars and then it gets released and um, causes outrage because, you know, it appears to be like capitalising off what's kind of quite a serious movement. It appears to be trivialising it. And you didn't have anyone in that sign-off process that was doubting that this was a great thing to be released. So this happens all the time in marketing, even with really big brands, but it's usually a um, result of... Um, you know, not doing enough pre-testing, uh, not looking at focus groups, not understanding um, your particular target market or other groups that might respond to it. It's very unusual that um, you get an act of deliberate sabotage that's in a piece of creative itself. 
um, just because there are so many processes um, in that campaign campaign planning process uh, to ensure that stuff like that doesn't happen. <laughs> um, so the example that you've got is just so unusual. Phoebe's description of this incident as a deliberate act of sabotage is certainly one way to describe the situation. But as we'll learn from this next interview, it's not the only way. Early on in the investigation, during one of my many trips to the Auckland Central Library, I stumbled on a book with a back cover blurb featuring two words that piqued my interest. Art and crime. Art crime. Art crime. What the hell is an art crime? A criminally punishable act involving an artwork, including acts such as theft, vandalism, or forgery. I didn't know, so I borrowed the book, read it, and then reached out to its author. Aside from being a writer, Penelope Jackson is an art historian and a curator. She's also a trustee in the New Zealand Art Crime Research Trust and a world-class expert in the subject. Could it be that our Christmas card story was an example of art crime, as Penelope defines it? So, you know, when the Mona Lisa goes, you know, leaves the Louvre, somebody nicks that, that's huge. So that's big ticket. But, you know, there's absolutely the other end of the scale. And they're usually, you know, the, um, the emerging artist or the poor artist or the striving artist, you know. And in fact, my second book was inspired by what is a kind of a, what I would call a small ticket item stolen in Arrowtown. That, um, I think it was Alison Naylor, is that her name? Had made, and it was a small exhibition at Arrowtown um, Art Gallery and Museum where they sold works. And, um, you know, what the tourist who nicked it didn't realise was that the, the cameras, the CCTV was linked straight to the police station and she was picked up the next day. So that was really great. But just because that was, um, you know, a fibre work, it wasn't the Mona Lisa, that doesn't make it, you know, uh, an unimportant crime. To me, that was an art crime. And it was very deliberate. You know, she was an absolute monk. She walked in, she looked around, there was no one watching her, and she just took it off, rolled it up, and popped it in her bag. Off she went. Uh, certainly, I mean, the art crime exists at, at that level, yeah. I profiled three case studies of three art criminals, blokes, who all stole big ticket items like huge um, art heists. And then their mothers protected them and became art criminals themselves. So one mother who was a nurse, she didn't realize that her son was basically a right, you know, he was very light fingered. He, he was a waiter and he'd been stealing artworks and museum objects for years. Um, when he was caught and the police were after him, she panicked and she actually threw a whole lot into um, the Rhine River. She also put old masters down the incinerator and things like that. So she became an art criminal, kind of a second generation to protect her precious son. And then the other mother was the case, a, a British case where the son was a forger and he was kind of he was a social recluse he he was really good you know he could whip up a you know a um a, a painting you know a constable or whatever in an hour 
but it was his old mother who would get on the phone and she'd have some kind of cock and bull story to a museum that, oh, now my great uncle was an art dealer and he left me this for my 21st birthday and it's an original blah, blah, blah. And then, so she did all the networking. She set up the meeting and then she sent her husband, the forger's father, who was in a wheelchair, really old, sent him along and everyone felt sorry for him and he had this little painting and they bought it. And actually it was the British Museum in the end who um, found them out. So there was a real cottage industry there, but mum was the main kind of one in protecting the sun. The other cases that I profile in here um, are women who uh, think they're doing good in terms of conservation. And I profile several examples in Spain of where they've decided to restore a sculpture at their local church. And of course, you know, the local church was probably built in the eighth century or something. And, you know, one of the sculptors was a wooden, you know, Madonna and child and things from the 14th century. And, and she painted it. So, and it looked like, so it went from natural wood to looking like muddy Barbie dolls, you know, hideous. Um, there's certainly the case in, in the second book here was Rose Dugdale, who was um, stole a whole lot of works to in terms of the try to release prison, uh, Irish prisoners from British prisoners and get them back to Ireland. So that was um, a political case, yeah. And, you know, she had a PhD in economics and came from a very good family. In fact, she even stole from her own parents to help the, you know, the cause. Um, so, you know, she was up in court against her father, which must've been very, very hard. So um, in terms of New Zealand though, we haven't got, you know, too many cases, fortunately, but there are certainly, as I say, that, you know, cases there. And you, you wonder about this case that you're actually looking at, is it, was there, you know, some kind of, well, not, not political really, but it's kind of that whole monopoly of business as well. And the kind of on that cusp of change is that, was that part of it? Yes. The question Penelope is asking here is a fair one. We've established that what happened could be considered an art crime, but could it also be something else? From our steadfast anti-nuclear stance to the 1981 Springbok tour, Aotearoa has had a long and colourful history with protest. I wanted to speak to someone who is well versed in the topic, and I found another author who could guide me through it. That's coming up after the break. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss hiring for your small business if you're not looking for professionals on linkedin you're looking in the wrong place that's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank linkedin helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role in a given month over 70 percent of linkedin users don't even visit other leading job sites so start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Stephanie Gibson is a curator of New Zealand histories and cultures at Te Papa Tongorewa, the Museum of New Zealand. 
Along with her co-authors Puawai Khans and Matariki Williams, Stephanie literally wrote the book on protest objects in New Zealand. Protest to tohi tohi, objects of resistance, persistence and defiance. I think I, I just think New Zealand has a really interesting, vibrant, rich history of protest. And I think everybody's an activist at heart, really, because it's all in the choices you make every day, you know, the clothes you wear, who who made your clothes, and the thoughtfulness that you put into how you live your life. A lot of that is actually activist thinking and the things you worry about, like climate change. And I just think um, it's really great if the museum can document what people create to express these concerns and these causes that they fight for or worry about. And I think Tapapa can play a really good role and all museums can play a role in documenting. The obvious protest objects are banners in the street, street marches, placards, posters, t-shirts with messaging, little badges with messaging and symbols. Uh, those are sort of the more obvious things that you see. But then there's also subtle protest objects. It might actually be an artwork inside a gallery, which requires a lot to unpick to understand. It might be a message somebody has hidden in something. Um, it might be something that's defaced. Somebody's damaged something in protest. That's actually quite a common strategy to sabotage and destroy an object. So it's huge. I mean, you've got protests right from the beginning. So I can only speak in terms of when Europeans started to settle in New Zealand, but um, you immediately had pushback from Māori, of course, um, as they sought to grapple with the, um, the terrible impacts of colonisation. Um, it all happened very fast. New Zealand was flooded by migrants. It had a huge impact on Māori, as we well know. And they protested right from the beginning. And they used lots of different strategies cutting down flagpoles, um, writing petitions, occupying their lands. Um, Māori have been very active in activism and protest right from the beginning of European settlement. Um, I actually think it has a huge impact. I mean, you don't, I don't know if there's actually much data out there telling you whether or not there's impact, but when you think about Ihu Matoa, the uh, movement to save um, the land up there in South Auckland, we started seeing uh, very colourful posters and stenciling around Wellington, and activists were very keen to get the message around the country. They were, I think they were concerned that the, 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 that the issue might just sort of end in Auckland, but they needed to get that message socialised around the country, and they went to huge lengths to visualise the message throughout city streets, and I think they were really successful. I think people got familiar with the name of the location and then with the kaupapa of what was going on. So it's reinforced, of course, by media and news and opinion pieces. So I think it's just part of the building blocks of educating people, of trying to get people on side. I mean, the only, I think the only thing I put in the book was when Ralph Hortery, the wonderful artist, he defaced a sign down at Aramoana. He just threw a, a can of paint over it because they were, you know, they wanted to build a, a aluminium smelter um, down at Aramoana in the 80s. So he defaced the smelter's sign. And I think it's quite sort of ironic. He's an artist who worked with paint and he used paint to deface a public, a public sign. And then that defaced sign was captured by um, a good friend of his who was a photographer, Gary Blackman, and he photographed the defaced sign. And then that photograph was considered art 
and went into an art collection. But it doesn't surprise me now that I've read the article and in, in the time that it was created and I can see why somebody would have said that because communities would have still been hurting in the early 90s with the loss of their services. And as you say, I mean, I'm not sure about the history, but that it was still a monopoly at that stage. So, you know, people couldn't express their outrage by shifting to another provider. So I think the original defacement is a is a protest action. You can also see it as, yeah, vandalism. You can call it many other, you can call it many things, graffiti, vandalism, sabotage, bad behaviour. But I think also it can be seen as a protest object. And it depends on, on what your perspective is. Um, what lens you put on it. Some people might be horrified. I mean, obviously it is horrifying when an artist's work is damaged. It's a terrible thing. But, you know, I think the artist was very good-natured about it at the time. Before the advent of personal computers, printers were incredibly important to protest movements, and you had amazing collectives like the Wellington Media Collective who worked with activists to create posters and campaigns. So um, the Wellington Media Collective uh, were in Wellington from the 70s to the 90s. They were a group of activists who knew how to print. They were artists, graphic designers, printers. They worked together as a collective and they worked with active or activist organisations and unions to help them print their, or design and print their campaign collateral. Uh, but they could see a real need in the 70s for people to get their message out and get it out effectively high quality productions and people didn't have PCs and very few people had a printing press at home so collectives like that were really important. This idea of a ragtag group of print industry folk banding together to support grassroots causes, that spoke to me. Luckily Stephanie was good enough to put me in touch with somebody that was right at the coalface. Chris McBride is an artist and activist with a long history of art-based protest in Aotearoa and a key figure in the aforementioned Wellington Media Collective. Chris has been on the front lines of several prominent protest movements over the past few decades, and he was happy to talk to me about some of them. Just quickly, I met up with Chris at a cafe that was a lot noisier than I'd anticipated. Apologies in advance for the less than perfect audio here. Um, Wellington Media Collective was a, a, a community-based activist artist uh, group that had... Um, facilities which provided people with uh, ability to to create and to print uh, posters and and little books and leaflets and, and so on. Wellington Media Collective started in 1978 and went through to 1988 uh, over a 20-year period to create work. Uh, that reflected the people's vision. Uh, when we first started, we were all volunteers. Uh, we, we provided our service um, for free. The facilities were uh, available for people to come in, and all they had to do was uh, to pay for the cost of materials. The collective was um, responsible for uh, a very vast amount of work um, in the in the. Uh, working with uh, women's groups, working with um, the anti-nuclear um, protest movement, with uh, the anti-apartheid movement, uh, trade unions uh, mentioned before, and um, various community groups and various uh, Māori activist groups as well. So that, so that we, we, there's probably some that I've left out there, but uh, but there's, you know, there's a vast range of 
um, people, individuals, organizations that we work with to provide them with the support to create and to get their message out. Um, we did a lot of work with uh, uh, trade unions and, and producing uh, posters and, and, and uh, placards uh, as well, mass placards, so that was mass statement type of thing. Um, we did a lot of work with the cleaners union, with the trade union movement, um, with the um, bus drivers, with the early education um, and and when there were when there was uh, you know other mass type of um, activities going on, we we would give support to creating leaflets and posters and and, and uh, as I said the the um, placards and, and and doing just a mass one color print and 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 having people come in and have a workshop to put the put the placards to the to the wooden ban. Uh, uh, wooden holders and stakes and, and that sort of thing. I've had a great time talking to all these experts about their areas of expertise and experience. As you can probably imagine, I've fallen into a number of rabbit holes as I've worked my way through this investigation. And some of these holes, they've taken a while for me to find my way out of. So thank you for being patient and for taking this little detour with me. And now that we've done some spelunking, let's find our way back to the surface. One of our reasons for reaching out to the people we've heard from today was to ask a specific question. Was the defacing of Grey Dixon's painting, and thus the Telecom Christmas card, an isolated incident? Or were there other, comparable examples of corporate sabotage in Aotearoa? From a marketing perspective, Phoebe wasn't aware of too many, but she gave us a couple of global examples that sprung to mind. There's only really a few examples that I can think of, of anything similar. Um, you know, one would be... Um, I think I've discussed this with you before, the the Homeland television series where they tried to um, basically create um, an authentic-looking um, Arabic set and they got um, a set designer in uh, to write in Arabic and they wrote Homeland is racist and nobody noticed before it was released and it went out on television. Penelope, our art crime expert, she mentioned a few times that public artworks had been damaged but she couldn't pinpoint anything comparable to the Christmas card. Of course, the big case, was it last year or the year before, was that guy who damaged the wind wand on Wellington Harbour. You know, he was just, he was being an idiot and being dead by his friends kind of thing. But that was, you know, a much loved work. So, you know, when there's a public artwork that is uh, damaged, you know, it's a, there's an absolute outcry because people do love, I mean, you know, that's the reason that councils and, philanthropists and things put works out there but when they're vandalized um it's terrible so that was a big one and that was interesting because you know he was you know um convicted and sentenced as well so that's quite a recent one along with her examples of the save our post office posters and the ralph hortery paint flinging incident stephanie mentioned how defaced government documents became a way to protest the war effort I really like the things where people are really strategic about what's going to cause the most havoc. So, for example, the defaced registration forms for National Military Service in the early 70s. So until 1972, young men had to do military service. 
and they could they could snarl up the government bureaucracy by sending in bulk like hundreds of thousands of defaced registration forms, which you know uh, bureaucrats in Wellington had to still process in some way. So I kind of I, I like that kind of object, which just ends up getting hidden in government files, but it's still there. The government keeps all that stuff; they don't throw it out, and I find that absolutely fascinating. And Chris filled us in on the co-opting of police imagery to make an anti-police statement. Um, the other, the other one that I think is um, probably um, worth thinking about or talking about, which caused some controversy, was uh, the Top Street Gang posters, but particularly the one that was done in, in 1981. Um, is this life for you? Join New Zealand's Top Street Gang. It's a thug's life. So it depicts a uh, a cop with a long baton about to come come down on the top of the head of a, a, a young Māori protester. We also asked them the question that we've asked all of our interview subjects: if they were to speculate, what did they think happened in the case of the deface Christmas card? Who might have done it? How? Where? And why? You know, it's possible that this was something sneakily organised. It's really impossible to know whether it was an individual or someone that potentially had links to the company. But of course, the company would officially, um, you know, Clear would officially deny that. Was it an inside job? You know, did a employee who'd lost a job were they thinking, oh yeah, a merry Christmas like hell? So it wouldn't surprise me if there were a few printers and big established printing firms that had an activist bent themselves and might have, might, have seen, might have seized an opportunity to put a message in there. If we're going to make sense of all this, we need to bring everything that we've learned over the last five years together. It's time to stare at all the thumbtacks and the red string on our corkboard, to review the evidence and to formulate some theories. It's time to lay everything on the line. This journey's been a long one. We've covered a lot of ground. We've heard I don't remember more times than I can count. But the end is in sight. I've got to believe that we're closer than anyone has ever been, and likely ever will be, to uncovering exactly what happened with the 1993 Telecom Christmas card. And that will be the focus of our next and final episode. Our series finale will be in your podcast feed from Friday the 22nd of December. And Luke and I both hope that you'll tune in and conclude this journey with us. Till then, ka kite anō. On the next episode of Prank of the Year. I believe that this sequence of events is the most comprehensive account of the telecom card incident that exists. This is getting too dangerous for you. We're going home and you're going to keep out of the whole affair while you're in one piece. Then I would gladly pass the painting on to them and uh, we might get something nice out of this event. Prank of the Year is written and produced by Luke Watkinson and me, Craig Major. Thanks in this episode go to Dr. Phoebe Fletcher from Massey University, Penelope Jackson of the New Zealand Art Crime Research Trust, Stephanie Gibson from Te Papa Tongorewa, the Museum of New Zealand, and Chris McBride. Our opening theme song is Let Go by Kong Fui. Closing music is Cliché by Deluxe Boy. If you're enjoying the show, please share it with others, and consider leaving a review on your podcast platform of choice. It really does help, and we appreciate it. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss future episodes.
Do you know anything about the DeFace Telecom Christmas card? We'd love to hear from you. You can get in touch with us directly and anonymously by email at telecomsucks1993, or one word, at gmail.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.